In today's episode, we are going over an evidence-based guide to physical therapy after meniscus repair. Let's get it rolling. So Dan, what is the problem, right? So imagine you're a physical therapist, you're coming in Monday morning, 7 a.m., and your first patient is a meniscus repair, right? They come through the door, and the doctor's protocol says this, <clears throat> toe-touch weight-bearing for the first four weeks, followed by partial weight-bearing for two weeks, using a brace, we're locking that knee in full extension, and then you start weight-bearing as tolerated at week six, you're going to be locked in full extension, and then at week eight, you can start weight-bearing as tolerated without the brace in terms of range of motion. Week zero to six, you're only allowed to flex the knee to 90 degrees. Week six to eight, your knee flexion is only to 135 degrees. Okay, very conservative protocol. Let's say you finish up with that patient, 8 a.m., next patient comes in. It's actually from a different doctor, but same surgery. It's a meniscus repair. You take a look at the surgeon's protocol, and it says this, no restrictions, right? So I, this is actually pretty funny, but it's pretty true. So I see this all the time. You get some docs that are extremely conservative when it comes to meniscus repair. And you get some docs that are the opposite, right? So obviously that's a bit of a problem. And as physical therapists, we're trying to figure out what's actually accurate, right? We have a lot of questions that need answering. So when should we be starting physical therapy with these patients? When is it appropriate to start weight bearing? What are the range of motion restrictions? What does the literature say about range of motion? What's safe, what's not, right? How about return to sport? Because I'll tell you what, these protocols are all over the place. I've seen protocols that say return back at three months, and I've seen some that are six plus months, right? So what gives? What's going to be a good answer for these patients? And the other part is that should the start of weight bearing as well as range of motion vary based on the person or their particular presentation? right? Because it probably should. So we're going to do a summary of what the literature is suggesting, right? So when do we start our weight bearing, right? Are we going to disrupt the repaired meniscus if we weight bear too early? Should we be wearing a brace? When should we start range of motion? And how far should we push it? Are we going to be damaging the meniscus repair if we do too much too soon, right? What are the rehab timelines that are evidence-based? And lastly, when should we return to sport? Lastly, I just want to try to give you some practical recommendations, right? So let's use our brain a little bit when we go over this, and then we can critically reason with the patients we're working with because they're going to be different types of meniscal repairs and different people you're going to be working with that probably influence the speed at which you go through a lot of these things, right? So what's the difference if you're working with a radial tear versus a vertical tear, right? What about the location of the tear? Is it medial or lateral, right? Is it going to be in the front of the meniscus or the back or the posterior part of the meniscus? Are you dealing with an acute injury or more of a chronic injury? Is it a complex tear, right? Or is it a bucket handle tear? And lastly, what is the patient's age? Because it probably does play a role at least with rehabilitation, right? And the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to show you exactly what I do with my patients. Uh, one of the things I, I think is lacking in the physical therapy community is folks that have a lot of experience that are actually sharing what they're doing on a regular basis from A to Z, right? So I'm going to show you exactly how I rehabilitated um, a power lifter 
of mine. So an in-depth case study of Chrissy Paraki, who's a two-time national champion, uh, show you how we started, how we progressed and how we got back to, you know, winning a national record or getting a, a national championship. Right. So, so welcome to the fitness pain-free show. This is where we help coaches and physical therapists like you get your patients out of pain and back to training. My name is Dan Pope. I'm a physical therapist, coach, personal trainer, and meathead. I love fitness. I have my dream job as a physical therapist, coach, business owner, and educator for several decades now. I want to help share some of my knowledge to help you get to a place where you're happy with your career and you're kicking butt in the clinic, right? I want to say sorry in advance for this bait and switch. So I've just taken uh, this statement from a research study I'll talk about in a second. Uh, basically, they say there's a lack of consensus regarding the optimal post-operative protocol following meniscus repair. At present, there is a paucity of evidence to support one best practice. There's a high degree of variability among post-operative rehabilitation programs. Additional studies are needed to better clarify the interplay between tear type, repair method, and optimal rehabilitation program. So I took the majority of information from this article here from the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And this is called Rehabilitation Following Meniscal Repair, a Systematic Review. What's kind of cool is one of the authors is Arun Ramapa, who's a local surgeon in the Boston area, which I really like and we refer to quite a bit, right? Um, I know this is 2018 study, right? So it's maybe not the most up to date, but here's the thing. If you start looking through the literature, the newest article I could find was in 2022 and I actually cite this paper quite a bit, but this paper, in my opinion, didn't do as good a job as this paper did. And they used almost all the same references. And unfortunately, it seems like somewhere between 2005 to 2010, up until present, uh, we just stopped doing research on meniscus repairs, which is a bit unfortunate because obviously there's a lot of questions that need to be answered and we don't have these answers. And it seems like in the past 15 years, we haven't done much to try to figure these out, right? But let's try to rationalize some of this so you can have some good takeaways. And before we get started, I want you to get you up to date on meniscus pathology. So I have a free meniscus pathology cheat sheet. It's evidence-based. I'm going to leave a link in the bio so you can check it out, right? So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is going to rely on you understanding some of this, right? This is evidence-based. Like I said, we're going to go over prevalence of meniscus tears. We're going to go over the anatomy of the meniscus and meniscal tears. We're going to go over common mechanisms of injury, clinical presentation, evaluation and diagnosis, treatment strategies, as well as surgical considerations. Once again, I'll leave a link in the show notes. It is 100% free. We'll get you up to speed so the rest of this presentation makes more sense. So why is the meniscus so important, right? So I'm not going to go crazy in terms of anatomy or talking about what the meniscus does, but suffice to say, it's very important. It reduces stress by increasing the contact area between the femur and the tibia, right? So once you start losing meniscus via tears or meniscectomies, you're going to have more stress in a smaller area, right? So obviously that's not the best thing. The meniscus helps buffer against axial, rotational, and shearing forces, right? So think about the common mechanism of injury. So if you have a dynamic valgus at the knee, you have rotation, shearing, that can cause a tear of the meniscus. Meniscus helps to buffer against those forces normally, right? So we have plenty of research to show that after you've had meniscus damage, especially meniscectomies, it's going to lead to more arthritis over the course of time. So this is the reason why the meniscus repair has gotten more popular over the course of time. 
because we found that if you just start to trim away pieces of the meniscus and the knee, that's going to lead to more osteoarthritis over the course of time. However, if you repair the meniscus, then it doesn't lead to as much osteoarthritis over the course of time, right? And lastly, the jury is out on this, and I actually did a pretty in-depth podcast episode about this. I'll leave a link in the show notes so you can check it out on whether or not you should have meniscus surgery. We're not really sure at this point if physical therapy for acute meniscus uh, injuries, which could be repaired, right, is as good or better than getting the meniscus repaired, right? There's one study out right now, and they followed participants out one year after surgery or after acute tear and just with physical therapy. The results are actually the same. So I'm kind of looking forward to the next 5, 10, 15 years just to see if the physical therapy group does as well as the meniscus repair group. But uh, the jury's kind of out. We don't have those answers yet. So what are the general physical therapy goals for rehabilitation after meniscus repair? Well, one, generally rehab protocols are initially focused on protecting repair while regaining range of motion at the knee and gradually introducing progressive strengthening en route to a return to pre-injury activity level. The reason for the large degree of variance in protocols is based upon an attempt to help to protect the repair. So when you see surgeons that have a very, very conservative protocol, it's because they're trying to protect the meniscal repair. Okay. The other problem with this is that if you're not weight bearing, you're not allowed to use much range of motion, you can't do much exercise, you're going to get a lot of atrophy and a lot of stiffness. So this is a double-edged sword. The thing is, if we're trying to protect the meniscal repair, are we actually doing a service to the patient or disservice by not allowing them to do physical therapy earlier? We'll discuss this a little bit. So let's go over some evidence-based decision-making in terms of knee range of motion after meniscal repair. So the idea is that restricting a patient's post-operative range of motion intends to limit the risk of retear, Right. In a study by Becker et al. in 2005, this was in cadaveric studies, right? And they've shown that uh, femoral tibial contact pressures increase with knee flexion. And if range of motion is restricted, the meniscal repair may be protected from increased mechanical stress. So the idea is as you flex that knee more and more and more, the contact pressures go up. If those contact pressures go up, that can injure the meniscal repair. A study by Hill et al. in 2000 helped to illuminate this point a little bit. They were looking at non-weight-bearing knees, right? This was an MRI study, and they took knees from a point of flexion to extension. And what they were looking at is the amount of movement that occurs in the medial aspect of the tibial femoral joint versus the lateral aspect of the tibial femoral joint. So the position of the medial femoral condyle does not change, right? So when you flex the knee, theoretically, there's no stress to the medial meniscus, right? That's the idea. However, that's not the case for the lateral femoral condyle. So as you flex the knee, you get 13 millimeters of movement from 110 to 60 degrees of flexion and one millimeter of movement from 60 degrees to zero degrees. And the conclusion from this paper was basically this pattern of motion suggests that non-weight bearing knee flexion would be safe to 110 degrees for medial meniscal repairs and to 60 degrees for lateral meniscal repairs. However, this finding has not been validated clinically, right? So we know there's a bit of a difference in how much motion occurs within the knee in the medial versus the lateral compartment. So maybe there needs to be a change for those lateral meniscal repairs compared to the medial ones, right? 
So guys, if you like what you're learning about so far, then I want you to go and check out the Fitness Pain-Free mini course. So I made a mini course. It's absolutely free. That's the next logical step if you want to learn more from me. So in the course, we go over five lessons. That first lesson is how traditional schooling has failed us, right? So schooling is phenomenal from a physical therapy perspective, but doesn't really teach you how to work with high-level athletes in the fitness world, right? Doesn't always teach you how to do the lifts appropriately. Doesn't teach you about progressions and regressions of common lifts within the gym. Doesn't teach you how to program normally, how to write rehab programs or how to write injury prevention programs for these folks. Next thing we go over, seven reasons why people get hurt in the gym, four simple steps to getting your clients out of pain, how to build the career of your dreams and earn the respect of your community. It's all well and good if you know exactly how to work with folks within the gym. But if you can't get these folks through the door on a regular basis, then you're simply not going to be living the dream that you want to because you can't get the patients through the door that you want to work with. Okay, so I'll show you how to do that. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about the fitness pain-free certification, right? So I'll leave a link in the show notes. I definitely recommend checking this out. Once you sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course, you will be automatically placed in the wait list for the fitness pain-free certification. Now, the Fitness Pain-Free Certification is the course, the certification that I wish I had as a new grad that fills in all the gaps in knowledge that you don't get in physical therapy school. So A, you'll gain complete confidence working with injuries in the strength and fitness world. You'll learn optimal technique for both health and performance from myself and some of the best coaches in the world. You'll master programming for rehabilitation and injury prevention. Have fun while earning a whole bunch of physical therapy and physical therapy assistance credits. You have 31.5 of those. You'll also gain NSCA credits as well as CrossFit credits if you need those. This is the equivalent of a university education in working with injuries in the weight room. I really believe that. I've been adding to this thing over the past five or six years. It's massive, a ton of phenomenal information. And lastly, the biggest goal is just to fill your day with the patients you love working with and building the respect and admiration of the communities you love working with. So I'll leave a link in the show notes, sign up for the fitness pain-free mini course. The certification is open four times per year for one week to enroll into. If you're on the wait list by signing up for the fitness pain-free mini course, I'll alert you when that next enrollment period is open and you can get started. Let's get back to the show now. Next, we have an article by Ganley et al. in 2000. So they took this a step further. So basically they're looking at knee flexion and loading on meniscal healing. And it was in cadavers, right? They produced a full thickness, posteromedial meniscal tears and cadaveric knees, and then they ended up repairing them. They embedded metal markers into the tear following the repair. They used CT scans, and the marker positions were assessed at 30 degrees, 60 degrees, and 90 degrees of knee flexion after loading of 100 pounds to stimulate, or excuse me, simulate partial knee weight bearing. And here's the thing. Neither flexion angle, loading, nor suture had a significant impact on the tear. So if you take a cadaver and you give it a meniscus tear and then you repair it and then you stress it at all angles of knee flexion, doesn't seem to stretch apart the meniscal tear, right? So that's interesting because we thought that we were putting more stress on the knee when we bend further and further, but this study was not showing this. Next, we have a study by Lynn et al. in 2013. And this was an interesting study because they were looking at performing range of motion over 90 degrees, right? So we're not just doing the zero to 90, we're going beyond 90 degrees. Again, this was a cadaveric model and they created 2.5 centimeter posterior medial meniscal tears and repaired it. 
then they measure the displacement of high degrees of flexion, so 90 degrees, 110, and 135 when loaded. They added a load of 29 newtons applied to the hamstrings and 150 newtons to the quadriceps. And neither the meniscal tear nor the meniscal repair demonstrated significant gapping. Rather, they compressed in the transverse plane when flexed from 90 to 135 while subjected to physiological loads. So what this means is that when you load the knee and bend it, it is actually going to support the meniscal repair. We'll talk about this a little bit more later, but this is because of hoop stresses. So when you load the knee after you've had a meniscal repair, and again, this is going to depend on the type of meniscal repair. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but it actually supports the meniscal repair as opposed to try to pull it apart, right? Very important thing to understand. Next is a study by Richards et al. in 2005. Now, the majority of these studies we talked about already are in cadavers, right? And obviously cadavers aren't the same as actual living organisms. So this study seeks to answer what happens in an actual living organism, not in humans though, this is actually in pigs. So they're looking at pigs with meniscus repairs and they were weight bearing in varying degrees of knee flexion. And they found the same thing as in the other studies. Weight bearing actually stabilized the repair. So this kind of begs the question, right? So for why, Dan, why does weight bearing help with meniscal repairs? Well, there's a concept known as hoop stress, right? So if you're watching this on YouTube, you'll be able to see this. If you're listening to the podcast version of this, I recommend at some point heading over to YouTube so you can see what I'm talking about here. So if you have a vertical tear within the meniscus, right? And then you repair it. So you can see a vertical tear in the image here. If you put pressure through that joint after a vertical tear, and it'll actually put the surgical surfaces closer together. So it helps to support the tear, right? So what we're finding in all these studies, if you have a vertical repair, which is basically the majority of most meniscal repairs, if you weight bear on that, the hoop stress is actually going to help to support the meniscal repair, right? However, if you have a radial tear, which is a different type of tear, you can see the radial tear. Um, it, it would be considered the transverse tear on the bottom left of this image here. If you weight bear on that, you could actually split the tear apart by weight bearing, which is probably going to influence when we incorporate more exercise for these folks. We'll talk a bit more about this later. Uh, suffice to say, we don't have enough research, but this is the idea, all right? So is there a difference in outcomes with accelerated rehab protocols versus conservative rehab protocols, right? So we just talked about the stress on meniscal repairs, both in cadavers as well as pigs. What happens when you start to push human beings after meniscal repairs versus being more conservative? So Lind et al. in 2013 did a pretty interesting study. They had two groups. They had a free group and they had a restricted group, right? So these folks had meniscal repairs, right? They were vertical tears, right? Which is going to be important. We'll talk about this later. The free group was able to range the knee zero to nine degrees immediately, right? They were tote, uh, excuse me, touchdown weight bearing for two weeks. And then weight bearing is tolerated thereafter. They're also allowed to return to sports, return to contact sports at four months. In the restricted group, they were in a hinge brace for six weeks or so a longer period of time in a brace, and they were gradually increased the range of motion to 90 degrees, and then toe touch weight bearing for six weeks, right? So quite a bit more, and they were returning to sport at six months, right? So obviously one of these is much faster than the other. What happened when, from an outcome perspective? So what happened from an outcome perspective? Well, 
There's no difference in the healing rate two years later. And what they're doing is they're looking at the meniscus after two years and seeing if the meniscus has retorn, right? Or it just didn't heal in the first place. There's actually no difference between the two groups. At second look arthroscopy, so basically two years later, they go back in surgically, right? Arthroscopically, there were nine and 10 failures in the free and restricted rehab groups, respectively. There's no difference in functional outcome as well with a two-year mark, right? And from this experience, the authors concluded that free rehabilitation was safe without a higher failure rate, right? So pretty cool. If you push these folks a bit faster, it doesn't seem to make a difference in the two-year mark. Now, this next study I thought was actually pretty hilarious. And I, I'm going to term this a hyper-aggressive protocol. And it's funny because it happened in 1996. This study was from Mariano et al. in 1996. And they took 22 patients who underwent an outside-in meniscal repair. And they were allowed to weight bear immediately, right? So just had surgery. Go ahead and put some weight on that thing as much as you can handle, right? There were no range of motion restrictions. They weren't limiting you to 90. Just bend that thing as far as you're able to, okay? So on re-examination with an MRI, an average of 28 months after surgery, only three of 22 patients showed signs of re-tear with greater than one millimeter of gapping, right? So that's also a pretty dang good outcome. And based on this experience, the authors of this paper advocated for more aggressive rehabilitation regimens. What's actually pretty interesting is that this study was in 1996, and if you look at the research in the 2000s, they actually go the opposite. They make the protocols more conservative. They don't really have an answer for this. It actually seems like we went backwards in terms of um, critical reasoning, right? So this study showed that early weight bearing is probably fine. And the next 10 years, we started to be more conservative. So that doesn't make a ton of sense to me, at least. But this is what the research is showing. So here's what I want you to do next, guys. I made an entire fitness pain-free show episode called When to Have Surgery for a Torn Meniscus. If you're a physical therapist, you're often trying to make a decision of whether or not you want to refer a patient to the surgeon and have them make the best decision for the patient, right? So when do you need surgery? Should you get a meniscectomy? Should you get a meniscus repair? Should you try conservative care? At what point do you refer to the doctor after conservative care? I answer all of these questions in this podcast. So go ahead and click on this link above and you can check out when to have surgery for a torn meniscus. So lastly, I just want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support. You truly do allow me to do what I love for a living. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that like button, comment, and subscribe. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this episode. If you are listening or watching via podcast, consider leaving me a positive rating and review. Helps out the algorithm tremendously and allows me to continue making episodes like this in the future. And lastly, if you want to go that extra step in supporting me further, consider subscribing to Fitness Pain-Free Insiders. It's a comprehensive educational resource and toolkit for the fitness and rehab professionals. Think Netflix, but for trainers and physical therapists. It's got premium content from me. I update this monthly and have been doing it for the past five years. It's over 100 webinars, eBooks, and complete guides. A private Facebook group to have questions answered by me. You can decide upcoming podcast topics. Get started for just $1. After that, it's $12.99 a month. You can cancel anytime. So head over to fitnesspainfree.com, click on the programs link, and click on Fitness Painfree Insiders Online Library. One of the lessons in there is exercise prescription for knee pain, where we go over exercise prescription in depth for meniscus injuries. I think you'll definitely learn a bunch with that. 
And lastly, if you want to check out the references, I'll leave them in the show notes, right? If there are any good papers you want to notify me of, please let me know, right? Um, And that's it for today. Thanks again.